Lord, I want to pray for every person here. As we continue with our preaching series on kingdom life, I want to ask that you would come and pour out your spirit, Lord God. Father God, we are, we are not a timid people. We're not afraid people. We're not a, a people who are just running away from our responsibilities. That's not who we are. We are the kingdom of God in action. We are your hands and feet. We are the people who make a difference in this world, Lord God. Because of our obedience, things are changing in the city. And Lord God, I ask that every single person here I would hear from you. Lord God, I pray that this would not be just, just something that we hand over to other people, Lord God, that this is our church, this will be our building, and from this place, our voice will be heard in Johannesburg. Lord God, give us the courage to do what is right and to, to take the right steps in Jesus' name. Amen. And Lord, as we continue with Kingdom Life, Lord God, would you speak to us? Would your word resonate in our hearts? And would you set us free? Would you deliver us? Would you make things known? Would you, you cause us to grow into the people we are meant to be? In Jesus' name, amen and amen and amen. Jesus at the door, the great exchange. I had this wild experience once when I was newly married. How many of you have in-laws? Now, we love our in-laws, but you know how when you first get married, it's just awkward. You have to call them mom and dad, but you just don't even know them. And it's just like this awkward situation of you forced into this close relationship, but you, ah, you know, later you love them. But at first, it's just a little bit awkward. So when I was first married, and I had lovely in-laws, but I didn't know they were lovely yet, and I was... I was at home. We had just had a baby. And you know what? I, I, have a lot of, I have a lot of good points. One of them is not housekeeping. I don't know. I don't know. There's a gene that you're born with. I just didn't get it. So anyway, we were, I'm, at, I'm at home. Andrew's away doing something. We've got a little newborn of about five, six months. And I, I confess, haven't done the dishes for a little while. You know, I, David was fussing around. So I'd given him some toys to play with. And he had just messed them all over the floor. And and, you know, I was having a, I don't know what, but I, I wasn't dressed very well. I was kind of sloppily dressed. Sorry, guys. Is this, are you, will you all see me the same again? It's okay. Will you forgive me? So I'm there, and I hear a knock on the door, on the front door. And I'm like, who's here at this time of day? I mean, that's, that's really weird. And so I look through the little peephole, and there is my father-in-law on the other side. I mean, I'm like, how fast can I get changed? How fast can I tell you this place? I'm, how do you wash dishes? Could I just throw them all out into the courtyard and just be done with them? You know, I'm like, what, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? So I, I come up with a really great plan. I'm going to pretend I'm not there. <laughs> So I go behind, I take David, because I've got to keep him, he's like five, six months old, I've got to keep him quiet, because if he screams in, you know, the game's up. So I go and I hide behind the couch with David. <laughs> and I'm sitting there, how long do I have to wait before you realize no one's coming to the door? So I'm hanging on, I'm hanging on. And then I hear something coming from the big open window behind me, <laughs> a knock. And I turn around, and there's my father-in-law looking through the window at me, crouched behind the couch with my son. Chaos all around. Hello, Carol, can I come in? I mean, what do you say? What do you say? The truth is, him and I never spoke about this again. It was just like a rule between the two of us. Just don't mention it. Anyway, the moral of the story is... <laughs> Opening the door. You know, when, you, they, when there's a knock on the door, your willingness to open the door depends largely on who's on the other side or who you believe is on the other side. 
And we have a story in the Bible of Jesus coming to a church and knocking on the door. And you know, the implication of the story is that, well, it was a letter written by one of the apostles, Apostle John. It was written to a particular church, Laodicea, and it was a portion within the book of Revelation. It was kind of a short little letter that Jesus asked him to send to the church. And in this letter, you hear how Jesus is knocking on the door of the church. And clearly that implication is he's been knocking for a while and they haven't let him in. And I, I want to mention that when I see it like that, they didn't know who's on the other side. You know, really, if, if I had known what my father-in-law was like, I would have opened that door with joy and say, hello, Dad, having a bad day. Will you help me wash the dishes? You know, it would have been a totally different story if I really knew who he was. But the fact that I did not, I did not know him yet, I'm still trying to push forward the right impression. I'm still trying to suss him out. I'm still a bit suspicious. And, you know, I think that, that church, they... They had things in place to make themselves look good. They had things in place to kind of like carry on. They had they'd been functioning so well without Jesus. Now who is this man knocking on the door? Who, what is this influence trying to come into our church? It's going to change everything. And so we're going to go ahead and read that story. You can find it in Revelations 3, starting from verse 14. And to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Jesus speaking to the church, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, pitiable, Poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear. Lord Jesus, I pray that we'd have an ear. We would hear what you're saying to us today. So Laodicea was an interesting city. It was a very famous city at the time. Interestingly enough, it had no water source of its own, and so it piped in waters from two cities. A city to to the one side of it had natural hot springs, and it would pipe in hot water from that, that city. By the time that hot water got to that city, guess what? It was no longer hot. It was lukewarm. They piped in from another city, Colosea, which was a little way, way away, they piped in cold water from cold springs that were in that city. Guess what the temperature of the water from that city was by the time it got to Laodicea? Lukewarm. So Laodicea was used to lukewarm water. They understood lukewarm. They were, they were known for lukewarm water that, that people, when they came from these other cities used to hot and cold water, they would just spew, oh, what is this? Spew it from their mouths. 
In addition, Laodicea was an extremely wealthy city. You think they could have invented boilers for hot water, but they hadn't got there yet. But they had a very detailed infrastructure for banking, and as a result, were, had, had gathered huge amounts of wealth, very well known for their wealth. They also had a textile industry where, with very famous black sheep that produced a very famous black wool that made naturally dark-colored clothing that people came from miles around to get. Then they had developed a medical system. They had a medical clinic there where the cutting-edge medical technology of the day was to be found. They had, they had invented um, a particular ointment for eyes that was supposed to cure eye problems. And this was the city of Laodicea, very self-sufficient, very, very sure of itself, very able to take care of itself. And Jesus coming to that church and saying, look, this, this very environment that is in the city is pervading the church. That self-sufficiency, that wealth, that, oh my gosh, we can take care of ourselves to the point where, you know what, God's not really invited to our church because we can pretty much do it ourselves. Yeah. And Jesus standing at the door and saying, this is not what my church looks like. Interestingly enough, he speaks about the fact that those who overcome, who resist, who resist the culture of the day are not able to say yes to Jesus in this environment. Are able to say yes to Jesus in this environment. He makes them a huge promise. He says, you will sit on my father's throne with me. Now, what does that mean? It means that they will be given authority to govern, authority to change things, authority to make a difference, authority to declare God's word and see transformation happen in that area. He's making them a promise. Come, resist the spirit of the age. Make yourself mine and you will see what I will do through you. He asks them to come and buy for him three things. And I think these are so significant. In a wealthy place, he says to them, come and buy. What does he mean by that? The, the kingdom of God is not an exchange. So in other words, I mean, it is an exchange, but it's not, it's not me working for stuff. So when he says, come and buy, what is he saying? He's asking for an exchange. And he's saying to this very wealthy city, he's saying to these wealthy people, he's saying to these self-sufficient people, he's saying for these people who've made a way on their own. And he's saying, give that up, and I'll give you something in return. He's saying, give me what you have, have produced. Give me what you feel like you can do on your own. Hand it over. Surrender that to me and see what I will give you in return. The first exchange he asked from them is this one, to exchange false wealth for true wealth. Now, this is a little bit of an ouchy thing because we live in Joburg. People come to Joburg not for our beautiful mountains, not for our wonderful sea, not for our fantastic entertainment industry. They come here to make money. People flock to Joburg for jobs. This was probably the true of Laodicea at the time. And Jesus is looking you, me, and every Laodicean in our midst in the eye and saying this. If your goal is money, you're missing the point. If your goal is wealth, you're missing the point. 
He says this to them, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. Now, here's, here's something I love, is that you can conclude from this that God hates poverty. I don't want you to hear anything in here that says God wants you poor. That he, he wants you rich, but he wants you the real kind of rich. This is the important thing. God, listen, the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news to the poor. How many times did Jesus say that? How many times in the gospel is that mentioned? Is that part of Jesus' coming was to eradicate poverty. God hates it. He hates every aspect of it. He hates it when there's not enough. He hates it when people were wracked by poverty and inability to get to resources and inability to fulfill their destiny because they don't have. God hates that. He hates that. But I want to tell you something that might shock you. There are as many poor people with large bank balances as there are with small, small bank balances. Poverty is not a function of how much money you have. Poverty is a function of your internal understanding of life and of God. Poverty is a function of your internal understanding of who you are. It will result over time in it will influence your bank balance. No doubt about that. But God is at first going after the poverty in your soul. And he's saying, no more. I hate that. I hate that. And let me tell you one way that the poverty of soul gets hold of you. When money becomes your goal, then let me tell you, there is never, ever, 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 ever enough. You will live poor with a large car. You will live poor with a big house. You will live poor with a large bank balance. You probably won't have a large bank balance because you'll be spending all your money. But, but poverty will get in your soul. If money is your goal, poverty will get in your soul. Luke 16, 13. Jesus didn't mince words. Have you noticed that? I mean, Jesus just said it like it is. That's why they wanted to stone him from time to time, throw him off cliffs and finally crucify him. It's because like, please just stop saying this stuff. It's making us feel bad. But he made the statement. He said this. No one can serve two masters. You love the one and hate the other. And then he clenched it. He said, you can't serve both God and money. You can't serve both God and money. You can't do that. If you're serving money, you're not serving God. If money is a tool to build God's kingdom, if money is a way of getting kingdom things done, then money will serve you. But if money is your goal, it will rule you. And it is a distinctively disgusting taskmaster. How do I know this? I grew up in apartheid South Africa on the right side. You know what I'm saying? I had very wealthy family. Almost all of them are divorced. Many of the children are just devastated. There was no joy associated with that wealth. Devastation at every turn. I've seen firsthand the destructive power 
of money as an idol. And you know what? Growing up, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play it straight today. Are you all good? Yeah. If you grew up poor, the temptation to make money an idol is even greater than if you grew up rich. Because you see it as a solution to everything. I want to save you the horror of going down that road. It is not. It will not give you what you want. It will not satisfy the desires of your heart. It will not make you whole. It will leave you as devastated and as empty as when you started. But here's the thing. Pursue God. Pursue God. And you will see he will add riches and abundance to you in ways you hadn't imagined. He will set you free in ways you hadn't imagined. And his desire for you is that you'll be rich in the right way. How, how, do, we make, how do we make sure that money isn't go- governing our souls? You give the first lot of it away. What is tithing? It's a way of saying I'm not depending on me. I'm depending on Jesus. What is generosity? It's a way of saying, I don't have to take care of myself. There's a God in heaven who will do that. I can be generous. I know that God will provide for me. I will obey him and I'll be sensible and be a good steward of what he's given me. But I don't have to hoard it. Because there will be a tomorrow where God will also be. One Timothy 5 to 10 and then 17 to 19, you can go and read it yourself, talks about what true wealth is. And it says this, first of all, true wealth is contentment. It's being happy with what you have. The reason people get into debt is because they're not content with what they have and they spend more than they are getting in. And what does it lead? It leads to poverty. Contentment is the foundation of true wealth. An eternal perspective is knowing that that I'm working towards something more than just what I have here today. If if you die not having achieved some of your financial goals, but you've achieved every single spiritual goal, every single life goal in light of your relationship with God, you will be a successful person. And let me tell you, when you stand in the next age, you will receive something so much more than the wealth you didn't achieve. Keep in mind, this life is a flash. It's a drop in the bucket of eternity. But how you live here will determine your eternal future. Don't be deceived into running after the wrong things. Generosity and good works. True wealth is being able to bring joy to other people through what you've gained. Faith. True wealth is not, is not lying in bed, sleepless, night after night, wondering how, how are you going to pay your bills? True wealth is putting your head on the pillow, going right to sleep because you know there is a God in heaven. As you have been faithful to him, he's going to be, well, he's going to be faithful to you, so you are faithful to him. Let me put it that way around. He's not faithful to us because we're faithful to him. He is faithful, therefore we can be faithful. The second exchange is an old identity for a new identity. And a new identity, okay, you give, sorry, let me, <laughs> I'm confusing myself. You give up your old identity and you get a new identity. You're getting that. 
He talks about, he says, I counsel you to buy from me white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. It's hard to get the immediate connection between that and identity, but shame is an identity. Shame is not just something you feel. Shame is a sense of who you are. When people feel shame, it's because they believe that intrinsically there's something wrong with them. That's what shame is. Shame is an identity statement. I'm bad. I'm not good enough. I'm a failure. Shame is an identity statement. Now, you know, as well as I do, so many people who experience shame. You've looked into the eyes of an unwed mother, and you've seen the shame. You've walked past a beggar, and you've, you've seen the degradation, and you've felt his shame. looked into the hearts of people who've been through horrific situations, who've lost things, important things, and you felt their shame. But the Bible takes us a little bit deeper. And the Bible looks in the heart of every person, every, every unsuccessful person and every successful person and says, I see the shame you carry. Because sometimes we, we cover up our shame with so much activity and so much bravado. But the Bible is very clear that the day that you, let me start backtrack. You were born, you were made, you were created to be clothed in the glory of God. That is your natural raiment. That is naturally who you are. You are. You are a carrier of the glory of God. You are an image bearer. The day mankind said, I don't trust you, God. I'm going to go in my own. I'm going to do it my way. Is the day we lost the clothing of God's glory. And that was the day that shame became our master. And I don't care who you are, how you've achieved. The bottom line is, without being clothed in the glory of God, without the presence of Jesus Christ, our identity is shame. And Jesus knocking at the door of this church is saying, you've been so successful in so many ways, and yet there is nothing to cover the shame of your nakedness. But here's the compassion and mercy of God. He's not standing at the door as I believed my my father-in-law was with judgment and anger. He's not standing at the door and saying, Pa, see, you messed up. Let me in so I can tell you how bad you are. That's what people think about Jesus all the time. Why do you think non-Christians are non-Christians? Because they think if I, if I meet Jesus, he's going to tell me how bad I am. No, the world's done that already. Your own soul has done that already. Jesus standing at the door is not there to tell you how bad you are. Jesus knocking at the door is telling you who you could be. He's come to show you what you could be if you said yes to him. And that's why people don't open the door to Jesus because they don't know that. The shame that is on the inside is saying to them, don't let Jesus see me. Don't let him speak to me because he's going to point out all these terrible things that I know and I've spent my whole life trying to cover up and pretend to the world that I don't have. 
You know what I'm talking about. We are all human here. We've all done it. We've all presented the right facade and, and hid the things we think aren't acceptable. And Jesus knocking at the door is saying, I see it all, don't worry, but I'm not here to judge you. I'm not here to stand like the world and tell you how bad you are. I'm here knocking at the door saying, let me in so I can change it. So I can make it different. So I can change the identity of who you are. We're going to skip that. Romans 10, 11, quoting from Isaiah 28, says this. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. If there are things in your life that you can't tell someone, right now Jesus is putting his finger on and said, that is your place of shame, that I want to change. And I'm going to invite you today, don't resist the knock on the door. Don't resist the knock on the door. The third exchange he asked for was their false sight for true sight. He said, I counsel you to buy from me, salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Oh, those Laodiceans, they thought they were seeing. I mean, they were on top of the world. They had it all together. They were evaluating the world by their own rules. And Jesus standing at the door is, is saying this, The glasses through which you're looking are wrong. The lenses through which you are observing are wrong. Have you ever shared the gospel with someone? And by the end of it, they just told you how okay they were and how they didn't really need it. Has it ever happened to you? You know what you're experiencing? You're experiencing this very phenomenon. Is that all of us see by virtue of our own perceptions, our own worldview, by what our upbringing told us to think, about how our upbringing told us to think. All of us are looking through a lens, just some of us haven't admitted it yet. And Jesus is taking us each by the hand and saying, give up your glasses. Give up your glasses. Come and see the way I see. And again, we're very scared to do that because we were afraid of what we will see. We were afraid that in that vision, that all the religious nonsense that we've been thrown at, that has been thrown at us over our lifetime comes bouldering in. To tell you if, you, if you give up looking the world at the way, the way you see it and see it the way God's seeing it, you're going to see, you're going to hear terrible things about yourself. You're going to hear judgment and nonsense. You're going to hear rejection and loneliness. And so we hang on to our glasses that give us false readings about the world, that give us false readings about ourselves. And Jesus knocking on the door and saying this, give up those glasses. Give up those glasses. See like I see. 
This is the prayer that goes like this. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, my world looks like this, but I know I'm seeing it wrong. Would you come and show me truth? This is the prayer of humility. This is the prayer that says, I don't get to define what's right and wrong. You do. And it will surprise you what is actually right and what is actually wrong. Many of the things that you have been judging, Jesus will say, I love that. Many of the things that you've been accepting, Jesus will, say, will tell you, that will kill you. But here's the thing. He's a good God. You can trust him. You can trust him. He didn't make you to humiliate you. He made you to glorify his name through you. He made you to lift you up, to give you more than you could ever have before. Oh my word, this team is working at finishing the, the service on time. <laughs> Keep going, Nola. Luckily, I happen to be finished. <laughs> In opening the door for Jesus, we exchange false wealth for true wealth. An old identity for a new identity. False sight for true sight. We sit with Him and we sit with Him on His throne. <laughs> Listen to me, church. Listen to me, church. I want to close with an analogy. Well, it's a true story, but again, when my housewifing skills weren't so good, I was homeschooling my children and having a ball of a time. There was a situation where I made them finger paints, and I'd seated them all around this little plastic table in our lounge and put the finger paints in front of them, three pots, red, yellow, blue. And as they were sitting there, probably five, six, and eight, probably, Oh no, a bit younger than that. But they're sitting around those pots. I'm about to give them instructions when the doorbell goes. And I turn to them and I say, don't touch anything. And I move out. While I'm speaking to the person at the door, I hear the most uproarious giggles coming from the lounge. As soon as I can get away, I get back there, and there I find my three darling children that I love wholeheartedly, each with their hands deeply in the finger paint, picking them up and then shaking them like this. There are spots of red, blue, and yellow paint everywhere, ceiling, floor, curtains, everywhere. I will not tell you what I did because this isn't a parenting lecture. And besides, I don't want to humiliate myself. But, but as I'd finished finally cleaning out that mess, I got this thought. You know, say someone else came to the door. And if I was carrying Jesus' heart, if they knocked on the door and they said to me, what's, what's happened at your house? If I were truly carrying Jesus' heart, I would have said this. You know, it's, it's terrible. I completely disobeyed the instructions and I, I threw finger paint all over the wall, ceiling and 
windows, but my lovely children saved me. My lovely children helped me. My lovely children got it right. And you would say, that is absolutely scandalous. Absolutely scandalous. But this is the God we serve. As he hung on the cross, he said, give me every bad thing you've ever done. I will not only die for you, but I will die as you. Put all the finger pain mess, all the relational mess, all the financial mess, all the soul mess on me, and I will stand before that creator of the universe. I will stand before everything, and I will say it was me. And I will take it. I will clean up your mess. I will clean up your mess and return I will say to you haven't you done well I will give you my righteousness you say that is so scandalous yes it is scandalous beyond the wildest imagination that's why people don't even accept it because they want to go back to clean up their mess by themselves and I want to tell you you can't do that your mess is too big your mess is too big And Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart right now. And he's saying this, give me your mess, give me your mess. Can we all bow our heads? Lord Jesus, I want to ask right now, if there's anyone in here, and Lord, they know that Jesus has been knocking on the door of their heart. And they've been too scared to open. They've been, Father God, they thought they were going to get judgment. They thought it was going to be terrible. They thought it was going to make their life work worse. They thought, Lord God, it was going to be such a terrible thing. And they've been resisting it for ages. Lord God, if there's anyone here, Lord God, would you speak to them now? And would you let them see who's on the other side of the door? Lord God, would you grace them to give up their mess and say, Jesus, I need you. Lord God, no one knows their life's a mess. They look great from the outside, but they know, they know. Lord God, would you speak to them? Church, can we all pray this together? Lord Jesus, I come to you and I surrender the control of my life. I give it to you, Lord. Lord, I've always known you. I've heard you, but I've never surrendered to you. And Lord, so I give my life to you.